Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins. Thank you to Luke for covering for me last week. I was moving house, and as a result, I'm now in a new studio. So I have a little bit more room here and can give you guys a slightly better podcast viewing and listening experience, and we'll have some better and higher quality educational videos for you moving forward. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Mandarin Blueprint podcast or have never listened before, it's essentially the podcast where we address the questions and comments that came in this week on the Mandarin Blueprint Method video course, the Mandarin Blueprint Community Forum, and certain emails from members of the course. And this has been a really fun ride doing the podcast because as we've interacted with the members of the course this way, we've been able to generate a lot of course content. And so we've recently updated the course. We added over 300 lessons related to vocabulary mnemonics. So this is great news. And people are really enjoying it so far. It's still early, but people are really enjoying it. We've also moved the vocab in context lessons later in, the, in each level once you get past phase three or once you get to phase three of the course, which is around character 105. And so now you learn characters in the first half of a level and words in the first half of a level out of context. And then the second half of a level, you get them in context, in sentences, and the sentences are designed to be made up of characters and words you already learned with the occasional thrown in new word, but we'll always give you a definition with pinyin and, uh, you know, just so that you know what that word is since you haven't learned it yet through the Henze movie method. And this gets you into comprehensible input very early, which is excellent. That's excellent for your retention of the uh, the characters and the words as you move forward and your ability to start to acquire grammar at the earliest possible point. With any language, you must acquire grammar naturally through comprehensible input, but with Mandarin, that's a bit of a sticking point because how are you supposed to just start reading sentences when you don't even know the component parts of the language? The, you know, quote-unquote alphabet of the language is... 3,000 characters long. I mean, there's technically way more than that, but there's about 3,000 characters you must know to function like a native speaker would in uh, Chinese. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing where if you don't have that set up at the beginning, then how are you going to start getting sentences you can understand? And so that's why the Mandarin Blueprint Method focuses first on pronunciation, then on character components and characters. We then move into making words out of those characters and components you've already learned, and then move into simple sentences that are made up of the first 105 characters that you learn through the course. And so that way, you don't have to wait until you know 3,000 characters before you're able to start actually gaining a sense of grammar. This is why many people in the Mandarin Blueprint Method pretty much every week point out how they were able to read things or understand things that they see in like video games where there's some Chinese or in uh, on street signs if they're in Chinatown or they're in China. Uh, and just the many opportunities that they have, they'll start to go, oh, I actually get that. And then you just build up from there. And then, of course, it doesn't stop there. In phase three, you learn lots of sentences and you go into phase four where we put those sentences together to create paragraphs, dialogues, opinions, uh, short stories. And then we move into phase five with our longer form stories, fairy tales for the most part, both Chinese and Western. So you'll have the three little pigs and you'll also have Sima Guang Zha Gang, which is a story about uh, this kid who smashed a big vat to save a little girl. Um, 
and that's a classic Chinese story. Then you have in the intermediate course, you get into some really great longer form graded content that it covers a whole panoply of topics. So this is what the Mandarin Blueprint Method is all about. Questions come in all the time each week. And so we've made the podcast to be able to answer those questions and get into uh, what people's concerns are because this is a method for learning. It's for autodidacts. It's for people who can learn on their own but need some guidance. They need a couple of coaches who point them in the right direction. And that's what the Mandarin Blueprint Method is all about. So let's get into this week's questions, comments, and concerns in the community forum by email and comments on the actual course. So first, Larry Clough in the community forum. Larry says, I have been studying Mandarin Blueprint in private for about four months and have learned pronunciation and about 100 words in Mandarin by studying 10 to 30 minutes a day. Nice. So that's a relatively short amount of time per day, but, um, you know, learning 100 words in Mandarin at 10 to 30 minutes a day, this, you know, just before I finish Larry's comment, I wanted to point out that there, while we try to make this as efficient as possible, there are no rules about how quickly you move forward, just that, you know, you take some progress every day, you make some progress along the map that we've written every day, you know, a map doesn't tell you how quickly to walk through the trail, it just shows you where the trail is, where not to go and where to go. But you can you know, sort of walk through it and smell every little rose and take a few steps every day. As long as you're making progress, then you're uh, using the map to its intended purpose. It doesn't really matter how quickly you go, but you can go quite quickly uh, if you wish. But Larry, he's doing 10 to 30 minutes a day. Last night, I was with a Mandarin speaking friend. This was the first time I actually tried communicating with a true Mandarin speaker. He was shocked that I could write and speak so much in so little time. Honestly, I was surprised at how much I could recall and communicate. This program is awesome. You know, there's no better feeling than shocking a Mandarin native speaker. And it's, it's, it happens more and more the better you get, right? And so I had, uh, I've had these instances happen over and over in various formats. And you know, here's the one that happens a lot. This one happened to me just last night. So since I just moved, I'm looking for a new gym to join that's uh, in the area. And I went into this one gym and I went to the uh, woman at the front desk and said, hi, I'd like to check out your gym. Uh, could I, you know, uh, talk to somebody about it? 咨询一下. 咨询. That's the word for um, to like consult with someone, you know, so to consult with somebody about the uh, the gym. And so she calls a guy over and this is this thing that happens where he sees me and, you know, naturally, I don't blame people for having this uh, reaction. They go, He goes like, uh oh, and he starts like looking around for somebody who speaks English because he probably doesn't speak English. Right. And he's like, uh, and then I just said to him, I was like, uh, and he, you could just see the relief go over his face. Just, oh, okay, you, I can just speak to you normally. And that's fun. It's it's nice to, you know, kind of have those interactions. And then it for him, it's like, okay, cool. Now I get to talk to, uh, you know, this American guy as opposed to the normal, you know, Chinese people in the area that I talk to is a little bit different. And so um, that experience just happens more and more. And the fact that it's already happening for you at character 100 or so larry is awesome so just going to keep going from there keep it up next we have bob wayland in the community forum he says this has to do with the henzi movie method which is our method for uh using a mnemonic system to remember chinese characters quickly 
I'm afraid I got off to a bad start on this. I didn't really focus adequately on my scenes because I already knew a lot of elementary characters learned in a previously failed Chinese course. Now I'm paying the price, but I'm resolved to do it right. I am finding it difficult sometimes to look at the henzi and thereby conjure up a specific scene. What I am experimenting with, and I would ask for some constructive criticism here if called for, is focusing first and foremost on the props that represent the henzi itself. So far, this seems to be making the bridge to the actor, set, room, and keyword a little smoother. Thanks, Bob. So, yeah, if you've learned characters previously in some other course apart from the Mandarin Blueprint method, it can sometimes be a little bit tricky to figure out what is the right way to handle this course because, you know, you don't have just a, uh, it's not just the course itself where you're getting the knowledge from, it's also this past experience. And so if you see a character you already know, the natural inclination is just like, let me just skip this character. But since our method uses mnemonics and we assign objects to character components, we assign people to pinion initials, we assign places to pinion finals. As a result of that, you will notice that if you skip things, then you get to a later character that you don't know, and there's an element of it that you didn't learn and therefore are missing. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go through the process of fully learning a character that you already knew, but like Bob suggested here, you should consider at least making sure you pick the prop or pick the actor or pick the set, AKA pick the object to represent the character components, pick the person to represent the pinion initial and pick the set to represent the pinion final. And once you pick it once, it will remain that way through the uh, entirety of the method. It's a universal choice. So if I choose a banana to represent the um, nah, component, which is the top left to bottom right stroke, looks like a banana, so you can imagine that, that will always be a banana for the remainder of the course. So it only takes a moment and it's not too much work. So I would recommend that if that's the situation, go ahead and do that. And then from there, you can easily, uh, you can easily skip a character that you already know. Just ask yourself this question though. Say, do I know its meaning? Do I know the components? Could I write it? When you say, do I know the components? Ask yourself, could I write it? And writing it isn't necessarily um, a thing you must do in order to function well with Mandarin in uh, the real world. It's just that if you can write it, it is proof, it's evidence that you do not need to have, um, you're not forgetting any of the components. That's the best way to think of it. If you can write it down, that means you for sure know what the components of the characters are. So. Do you know what it means? Do you know how to write it? Therefore, indicating you know the components. And do you know the pronunciation, including the tone? And if you know all of those, then you can skip making the movie scene. But if even one of those is missing, it's worth making a full scene for it. And the reason being because uh, you must know all of those things. You can't not know the tone of a character and expect at least the most common tone of a character and expect to easily be able to function and get your comprehensible input. Because if you have a wrong idea in your head about what the uh, tone of the character is, then you're gonna have a problem with pronunciation moving forward naturally. You're gonna say the wrong tone. And so luckily the Henza movie method deals with that directly by assigning the tone of a character to a room within the set. So all fourth tones are in the bathroom or the backyard, all third tones are in the bedroom or the living room or some other room if it's not a 
a house, like if it's a, a workplace, you can just assign the conference room or something. Uh, second tone is always in the kitchen or just inside the entrance. And then first tone is outside the entrance. And so that way you've always got the tones covered. And fifth tone comes up occasionally, which is uh, usually fifth tone is a character changing from its normal tone to fifth tone. But occasionally there's a character like L or D that is a fifth tone naturally, in which case you can put that on the roof or in the basement either way. Uh, cool. So I hope that's uh, helpful, Bob. And I certainly think that if you're going to pick your props first and then think about your actors uh, and sets, that's perfectly fine. Um, I think that's okay. If that's if you find that smoother for you, then that's what I would do. Next, we have another community forum post by Jessica M. And she says, assuming the speaker is standing somewhere that isn't in China and talking about going to China next year, why is it 我明年来中国 and not is um is it just about adding perfect aspects so it kind of like so it's kind of like future perfect tense well the last question i don't know i don't understand english grammar at that level i don't really understand all those sort of english grammar like present perfect future perfect all that stuff never got it when i was in school i was always just like what it was just part of the reason that i have such a um such a, a disdain for grammar lessons that focus too much on the rules because to me it's just uh it i don't want to be rude here it's it's linguistics and linguistics is fine but it doesn't have anything to do with acquiring language like it's like a, if you want to acquire the language you have to do it much more like a child does get the comprehensible input and it doesn't matter whether you know whether it's future perfect past perfect or whatever but Let's let me explain why both of these sentences, 我明年来中国 and 我明年去中国 are fine in a non-grammatical way. Imagine that you're talking with somebody, and as Jessica puts it here, she says, standing somewhere that isn't in China. Okay, so they're not in China. And so the idea is, shouldn't it be 我明年去中国? I'm going to go to China next year. Well, just imagine how you actually speak in English. It's the same thing, right? Suppose I'm on the phone with my friend in China, and I'm saying, next year I'm going to come to China. That's not weird. If I say, next year I'm going to come to China. Why? Because I'm placing myself in my imagination in China with my friend. I'm empathizing with their condition, which is being in China, and then I'm saying, 我明年来中国,来, come, right? It's fine to say it that way, because you're just placing yourself in your imagination in their situation. And that sort of basic empathy is a thing that happens all the time naturally. And we don't take note of it in our native languages. We just go, oh, uh, you know, you're in China. I'm talking to you on the phone and or Zooming or whatever. And I just say, I'll come to China next year. And we wouldn't think twice about that in English. And it's the same thing in Chinese. So it's not uh, the way Jessica framed this question was, why is it 我明年来中国 and not 我明年去中国? It's not, you can say either. You could say, I'll go to China next year. Perfectly fine. Uh, so either one is okay. The reason why is because we naturally kind of place ourselves in our imagination in the situation where uh, you'd say, uh, come and not go. All right. Hopefully that answers that question. Next, we have Thomas Chernick by email. He says, 
Hi guys, this popped up on my Spotify today and you were my most listened to podcast this year. I just want to say how thankful I am for discovering Mandarin Blueprint this year. You have kept my hope and interest during the pandemic that it gives me something fun and new to learn each day. So that's great. Um, I, say, I think it's sort of trying to say you gave me hope and interest during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I think just a small typo there. Um, and uh, let's see here. It gives me something new and fun to learn each day. I know how hard it is to keep up as your business grows, but I love how the course is growing and changing. Thanks for everything you do and keep it up. Stay well, TJ Chernick. And we did a case study with TJ, very interesting guy. We had a fun time chatting and uh, he's been a great contributor to the course, leaving lots of comments. And I'm so glad that you listen to the podcast so much, TJ. So uh, thanks for um, always you know, staying in tune with what we're up to. And the podcast, hopefully we're providing enough value that it's making the course that much better. We want the course to be living. We want it to be alive with the new content that we're adding and the people on the course. It's definitely not just about what Luke and I are doing. So that's awesome. All right. Next, we have Becca G on level 14 complete. She said, well said, Phil. Remember, you are reading a picture language. That's amazing. She's quoting what I said in that video. Uh, really struck me and I laughed because it's true. The squiggles are now simply words to my eyes and that is both crazy and amazing to me. Chinese is endlessly fascinating and I love how direct and quote unquote bare bones it is. It gets right to the heart of what the words really mean, and that makes it interesting as heck. I love learning it, and even more so, love how you guys teach it. Well, thank, thank you very much, Becca. I just recorded a, a case study with Becca the other day. We haven't released it yet, but look out for that coming soon. Uh, she's got a very interesting um, sort of background that makes learning via the Henza movie method uh, quite fun for her, and uh, she loves dragons, just like me. So... That's uh, really cool. Awesome stuff, Becca. Next, John by email, he says, Hi, you mentioned that after we complete the intermediate level, we should be able to pass the HSK at level four. I've read that the HSK is missing a lot of frequently used words. How did you come up with the vocabulary for your course? And then he links to an awesome Hacking Chinese article, uh, What Important Words Are Missing from HSK. Also, do you have any estimate when you will have an advanced course? Thanks, John. So this, I loved this email because we did not make the um, Mandarin Bluebird Method course with the intention of having it be something that is HSK based. First, we made it with the intention of it being actual real frequency based and then think about the HSK later. But what happened was during the foundation course, when we didn't have the intermediate course yet, we got so many emails from people saying like, what level of the HSK would I be able to pass? And we were like, all right, the market is demanding that we talk about the HSK uh, at least a little bit and give lip service to it. But make no mistake, the HSK should not be anyone's gold standard for whether or not you can speak Chinese. Unfortunately, is the internationally recognized standard for whether or not you can speak Chinese. So if you want to put something on your resume, you got to pass the HSK. Uh, however, I would say that what we did and how we approached it 
was thinking about the HSK second. So the first thing we did was we took, we took a corpus of over a billion characters that came from many different sources. Like a lot of corpuses of characters come from like periodicals and newspaper articles and like communist propaganda from the 60s. And so the frequency list is very skewed towards written Chinese and skewed towards archaic Chinese, at least in terms of not like archaic, like ancient, but archaic is in it's not used that much anymore. And uh, so we used a corpus that also took things into account like Weibo, which is the Chinese Twitter, uh, takes into account things like uh, TV shows, comic books, things like that. That way, the frequency is more mi a mix of spoken and written. And then we get the list of the scores so basically each character gets a frequency score and each word gets a frequency score and we rank them and then we organize them by common component if you organize them by common component that allows for you to uh, make sure that you're not um so it allows you to make sure that you're not just learning two characters next to each other that have no relationship in terms of their components and therefore have to learn a bunch of components all at once. So take, for example, that the, the top 10 most common characters in Chinese take 15 different components to make them. So imagine that you had to learn 15 different components just to learn 10 characters. It's not the most efficient way to go. You should learn a component and then see what characters you can make with that component. So here's a simple example, the component of a horizontal line. Well, if you learn that, you can learn the character E, which is just a horizontal line. You can learn R, which is uh, two horizontal lines, and you can learn San, uh, so that's one, two, three, E, R, San, and the three is three horizontal lines. And that gets you to the limits of the high frequency characters that you can learn with just a horizontal line. So then we add in a vertical line. Oh, look out. You can now learn shi, which means uh, 10. So that's a horizontal line and a vertical line. Uh, and so now you know one, two, three, and 10. And then you add, uh, you can also learn gan, which is a character that can also be pronounced gan, which means dry when it's pronounced gan, and that's two horizontal lines and a vertical line. So you, you see how if you just add in a component each time and then cross-reference that with the uh, frequency list, you can find your characters and words that way. So we based it very much on frequency. And then when we made the intermediate course, we did that same thing, but then we just said, okay, what are the missing words from the HSK4 that we haven't yet covered? Uh, and then let's just make sure we cover those characters and words as well. So it was kind of like, not exactly an afterthought, but it was like a, we're going to do it our way first and then tack the HSK onto it so that, you know, we can satisfy this particular market demand. But by no means is the HSK the best way to acquire Chinese or you should you use it as a gold standard? Excellent stuff. Excellent question by John there. David Hopwood by email. He says, hi, Luke. Just to reassure you that my cancellation from Mandarin Blueprint is merely a pause. I had to travel unexpectedly overseas and simply don't have t the time or access. I'll be back on when I return home. But thanks for this prompt. I am very impressed with the quality of the course, not least the constant work you and Phil put into it. The recent reconfiguration is just an example. Your competitors seem to have produced material, adequate though it may be, and pretty much left it at that. You guys really do earn every dollar, pound, euro, yuan, whatever. So more power to you. 
In the words of the great philosopher and humanitarian Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. Best regards, Dave Hopwood. Well, thanks, Dave. And uh, we're more than happy to put in the work because, you know, the technology has made it possible for us to communicate with everyone in this way, get their feedback, listen to the feedback, recreate the course. And like all of these things wouldn't have even been possible five years ago. Like the amount of uh, tech that we use that is recent, the recent inventions are such that we can have this very powerful system. And uh, soon we're even going to have our own system for flashcards as well. And we won't have to rely on Anki as much. So there's all this great stuff that's happening. And the only way to ensure that it remains relevant and that it remains uh, the best it can possibly be is if we're constantly listening to people, constantly answering their questions and taking their feedback and turning it into something that is uh, constantly growing and changing. And that, that way, you know, anybody on the Mandarin Blueprint Method feels that they're getting a lot of value from it, especially because now we're switching to a pricing model that's more like you just buy it and you have it uh, and you own it. But unlike a product that you buy, like a, I don't know, a sofa or something that just now you have it, but it stays exactly the same. If anything, it just deteriorates. Um, the Mandarin Blueprint Method, you buy it and you have it and it gets better over time. So it's really a great value that we're offering here. And so luckily, because of the tech that's available today, we don't have to have a an enormous amount of overhead. I mean, we've got overhead like any company does, but we have way less as a result of the technology that's possible. You know, we don't have to have a university with all the staff and, uh, you know, admin and all that stuff that makes a university tuition so high. Uh, so we can therefore give the same type of comprehensive curriculum that a university does and, you know, charge less than a semester's worth for the whole thing. And even if you just want to try a piece of it, then a smidgen, you know, you can buy pronunciation mastery for 10 bucks and uh, you can buy the first, uh, you can buy pronunciation mastery in the first phase of the course for 30 bucks. So it's like the kind of thing where we're not, you know, sure our full bundle is, you know, several hundred dollars, but it's like, well, that, you know, that's compare that to a university situation and it grows and it's changing and it's adding value all the time. So it's not, you're getting the reason we're willing to do that is because we know it's so valuable. And when you have something that is that valuable in your back pocket, it's just natural that you're willing to put in the work. So thank you for that recognition, Dave. And we're uh, so happy that you have been on the course with us. Next, we have Chad Ressler by email. Chad is a longtime member of Mandarin Blueprint. He says, hey, guys, thought I would pass along a funny Chinese learner story. So I like to play Battlefield 4 on PS4. A lot of the maps are set in China and in cities and stuff. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've been <laughs> killed lately by other players because I stop and I'm like, I know what that sign says, or I know the characters on that building. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I love that idea. Like you're just like you're supposed to be focusing on uh, getting your kill shots in the game, and then and then suddenly you're just like, oh, that says uh, spicy noodles. Oh, sweet, and then you just get <laughs> you get shot. Yeah, that's a. Uh, but hey, that's um. <laughs> that's a funny way that, hey, we're, we might be messing up your video game skills, but at least your Chinese skills are getting better. Thanks for uh, your comment as always, Chad. Next, we have Becca G on Xiangfa in context. Christopher's comment about breaking it down to basics and then filling in the rest of the details was tremendously helpful in understanding the people with ideas line. And what she's referring to there is there's a, a sign or a line, I believe it was, 我认识很多有想法的人, 
And uh, that 有想法的人 is a way of describing 人, and it's what kind of 人, the kind that have ideas, 有想法的人, and it's just basically saying intellectuals. It's, a, it's kind of a way of saying intellectuals because they're just people with ideas, right? Um, so continuing, that entire sentence tried to break my brain a little. Oddly, the work one seemed to more or less make sense, though. It must be referring to another sentence in this lesson. Some of these sentences are getting tougher to read. Not complaining at all. I love the challenge of it. It's so rewarding being able to understand so many so far. Just proof that the Mandarin Blueprint really works. Yeah, there's um, there's certainly a large degree of, um, I guess, a sense that, uh, how would you put it? It's like when you're looking at the sentences the challenge of it is of course higher in level 14 it's the very beginning of the sentences so you're getting a real sense of how sentences work for the very first time so it's never going to be harder than it is now for you but the fact that it's challenging in a good way is makes a lot of sense because you do understand the constituent parts you know the characters and you know the words so the fact that you know the characters and the words means that you're not wasting your time wondering, well, what the heck is that character? You can only, you only have to focus on, well, why would it be structured this way? And that's a challenge, but it's not a challenge that you can't overcome. And that's actually one of the best ways to get into flow state. Flow state is about finding that perfect medium between boredom and anxiety. So if something is too difficult, you feel anxious about it. And if something is too easy, you feel bored by it. So you want to find that perfect thing. And when it's a challenge that is you know, it's too much if you're trying to figure out what a character means, what a word means, and how the sentence is structured. So if you already know what the characters mean and what the words mean, then that allows you to, you know, just have the uh, sentence structure be the challenge. And that's not an overwhelming challenge. Still a challenge, but not overwhelming. Nice. Xiaoen on New Vocabulary Unlocked. If these two characters are sitting next to each other in a sentence or a paragraph, how will I know if I have to take their meaning individually or as one word, if that makes sense? It does make sense. I mean, that is the question that a lot of people have if they've ever speculated about Chinese from not being able to speak it. That was something I wondered. You know, you look at a page of Chinese text and you might notice that there's some punctuation and stuff, but it's like, well, how do they know the separation between words? And it's one of those things where Every so often, you'll notice uh, a separation between words that you accidentally got wrong, and you'll go, oh, I thought it was this, and but that actually very rarely happens because you start to get a sense of structure. And since, you know, like for example, when you see, uh, how about this sentence? 我认识很多人, I know many people. Right. So you're going to see that and you're going to know that that's a common pronoun. That just means I or me. And so you're going to see that you're going to go, that's clearly its own word. And then OK, maybe maybe that's uh, separated. But then again, I did learn it as a word. Right. Like so in this uh, lesson that Xiaoen left the comment on, there is the whole point of the lesson is that is a word. So when you see in a sentence, you're probably going to think that's probably the word itself. Um, but, you know, maybe the it's ren by itself and then shi is uh, the beginning of the next word, perhaps. But then you have after that, hen duo ren, very many people. And hen duo is going to come up all the time because it just means very many. So that's naturally a super high frequency thing. And then ren also is 
majorly high frequency one character word. So it's the kind of thing where when you do process of elimination, the vast majority of the time, it's super clear. And then every now and then there happens to be that the second or the first character of a word that comes after a previous word happens to also be the second character of a word that conjoins with that previous character. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Oh, well, here's an example that came up the other day. Um, we were talking about this sentence, which was, 我认为美分很多种. So the sentence was, I believe that beauty divides into many types, uh, can be split into many types. And the thing is, fun is also the word that means American penny, right? So it's if you were to divide the sentence differently, you could say wo mei fen and then say that's saying I think American pennies are blah 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 blah. But actually, um, as I pointed out in that podcast, if it were mei fen, uh, then you would need another verb there because the verb in the sentence was uh, fen. Right, it's the same character, but it has two different pronunciations depending on what the word is. And in this case, it was wo mei beauty fun divides into han And so, if you take away, if you make it mei fun and make those two characters one word that's a noun, then the sentence is missing a verb. And as you get your sense of uh, grammar, you go, well, there's no verb here, so it can't. I must be, you know, dividing the sentence wrong. So uh, while it may seem that there are you know, this is going to be a big problem. It's much less of a problem than you would think it would be. And of course, Xiao En is on one of the earliest uh, lessons in the course. So uh, actually, it's about halfway through phase one. So it's not until phase three until you'll start seeing things in sentences. So not to worry. It's one of those things that when you're speculating about it, you go, how am I going to be able to know the difference? It's actually a lot easier than you might think it would be. Next, Simon Stevens on Vocab Unlocked from Bei, Beidze, and Ganbei. So Simon says, <laughs> I just said Simon says, Simon says, read the question. Uh, <laughs> Ganbei is a really useful one to understand. I've been here for over two years. I think he means in China. And I've heard this said often. So I soon understand that the meaning was, I soon understood that the meaning was to finish your drink. But until now, I didn't understand why you had to finish your drink. Dry glass makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Gan, dry, bay, cup or glass. So when somebody says ganbei, it's it's often translated as cheers, but the understanding in China is uh, that it means empty your glass. And that's why sometimes going out drinking with Chinese people can be a, a harrowing experience because they're saying ganbei all the time and it's like baizhou, which is a liquor. So you're just like knocking back all these baizhou and the next thing you know, uh, you know, you've uh, blacked out and are in uh, a sudden rural farmland area and you didn't know how you got there. Um, <laughs> obviously, I say that in jest. Next, we have Oscar Hagland on level 18 complete. Today, while I was reading for my kid, I realized for the first time that I could actually not just intuit what it was about, but that I could actually understand almost every single word. There was one character I did not know of the first three pages. Now, granted, this is properly a kid's book, but it was still a revelation that it could happen after less than one and a half months of evening studies. Here are the first three pages in case anyone is curious. Mama, 
I should have said the second sentence a little bit differently. I should have said, 等一下,爸爸,马上快完了。And so this sent, these three sentences, yeah, it's basic stuff. It's a kid saying, who's going to tuck me in or say goodnight to me? 谁来和我说晚安? And so he's asking, who is going to say goodnight to me? The mom says, 等一下,爸爸,马上快完了。Wait Wait a moment. Dad's almost finished, so whatever his dad is doing. And then, uh, Mama, 打完电话,走过来. Right, so she's probably referring to herself, but like, Mom's going to finish being on the, uh, finish her phone call and then come up. Right, so it's, that's how she's saying that. So this is um, pretty cool. Uh, I like that Oscar was able to understand most of that. And uh, yeah, that's that's a really exciting moment when you see something in real life like that. And, you know, also um, the... You know, pointing out that it's properly a kid's book, I mean, it it only makes sense that you would first be able to understand kid's books because you're building from the bottom. So, like, you will first understand kid's books, and then you'll understand, you know, short adult-like opinion pieces, and then you'll understand longer-form longer, longer form pieces. It's all part of the process. So, well done, Oscar. That's awesome stuff. Gave you our ticker on Vocab Unlocked from Yin, Yin Hang. To me, this is a picture of Uncle Scrooge with a pile or a row hung, but I see a pile of silver coins and a piggy bank. I guess that would be my very first association with the word bank when I was a child. Right, so we've got the two points there, the row, um, the row of silver, the pile of silver, because yin hung is the silver profession or the silver row so they you know and the, i think the example we gave in this vocab mnemonics lesson is that uh hung can mean row but it can also mean profession but that kind of makes sense right because a row is like a lane and you can think of that thing that we say where we say stay in your lane right you know you're you're not a um an epidemiologist you're a a philosopher so don't talk about epidemiology stay in your lane for example and so um that's sort of what she was noticing there and then her association is the piggy bank so the row of uh the pile slash row of silver coins and a piggy bank nice um so continuing he is doing his favorite activity counting his money by taking the silver coins from the pile row of coins and putting them one by one into the piggy bank which is made out of transparent plastic so that I can see that I can all the time see that they these are silver coins so that it's impossible to forget that the coins inside the bank are made of silver. Excellent. So silver row means bank. This is exactly what we're talking about with the vocab mnemonics. And the vocab mnemonics, of course, can be more eclectic than the Henza movie method. It doesn't have to be quite so systemized. Scrooge does not have to be in any particular location here. He's just in association with being miserly and, you know, not spending a lot of money and saving up his coins and counting his money, right? Uh, and so uh, I once read an article by an economist pointing out that if everybody acted like Scrooge, the economy would actually do very well because entrepreneurs... Uh, are a big driver of the economy and entrepreneurs must save in order to be able to start businesses. It was an interesting point because uh, we always think of Scrooge as this, just this awful guy. Um, but interestingly enough, he, if people acted like him when it comes to money, we might have a better economy. Who knows? So anyway, another one from Gavia Artica on vocab unlocked from Fu, which has Fu and Shuofu. So this is related to Shuofu. When I Googled convincing speech, 
because shuofu means to convince. Searching for an image for shuofu, I got an old black and white image of a presidential debate. And I think that works as a reminder for this word. Lots of speeches and speaking with the purpose of convincing other people. Sure, that's exactly what a debate is about. It's like convince you to vote for me or convince you to vote uh, for my party or whatever it is. So uh, totally, that's a great association. And that's a good image for your flashcard. Absolutely. Andrew Coleshill on Da Dianhua in context. Hi, trying to get my head around the difference between Da Dianhua and Da Guo Dianhua. What is the Guo doing in the second one? So he's referring to this dialogue. Wu Zhao Shang, gei ni Da Guo Dianhua, dan shi ni bu zai. And then the second person says, Ni shi ji dian gei wo da de, shi dian. Ni gei wo da guo ji ge dianhua. So this is um, a question about guo, because normally we think of guo, when it's a grammatical particle, as being expressive of having ever experienced the thing in your life, right? So I have like uh, this particular Chinese dish, and what that would mean is, did you ever eat this before? Have you ever had this particular Chinese dish in your life at any point? And so in this case, though, it's not that meaning. So there's another meaning of guo that is kind of trying to emphasize two things. One is that it happened recently to some degree. Uh, and then the other is that it was like com it completely happened. It, you completely went through it. So I gave you a call, but... I can see why guo might feel a little bit better than le because the person didn't answer. So it feels a little bit like it's not completed. Like le is a completion of an action. Although it, you could say, okay, need the and that would be fine. Um, but by saying, okay, need guo dianhua, you're indicating two things. One, that it was recent and that you, you know, did the whole thing. You can imagine them like ring, ring, and they're just waiting for it to finally finish. And so it feels like they've gone through it because Guo means to go through. So it's like they've gone through that experience. This is what the second person says. And it's just like saying, how many times did you go through it? And then you'll notice that the final one is So there they use le at the end. So when you're using guo in this way, where you're kind of saying uh, it's related to the recency and you know maybe emphasizing that you feel like it was an experience to go through uh, then it's largely interchangeable with look so for example people will often say as a way of kind of gre uh, greeting and you could say uh, but let's suppose it's not a greeting let's suppose they're actually asking you did you eat because maybe they'll give you some food or something you might say or and what you're trying to get across there is that recently you ate and you're completely done with it. You do not need to eat anymore. And it's an emphasis. So you're emphasizing it a bit. You're not, it's not necessary. You could just, you could just say, well, right. But when you say, well, you're getting across two things. It happened recently and that it is totally experienced and done with, don't need to do it again. And so, uh, that is, you know, a, a way you can understand guo, but it's largely stylistic. It's largely, um, you know, getting across a, a subtle point, but you know, in some cases it's more appropriate than just le by itself. Good question, Andrew. Jason Pan on yet in context. Is there a measure word for yet? Doesn't appear to be one here in wo xie le ji ye. What the answer here is that yet itself 
is a measure word because yeah is a page of something a page of a book a page of writing uh right so uh when Zhang is a uh, article right or it could be uh is homework uh so that's your um it's not the same yet it's a different yet um so would mean I wrote a few pages of homework so there's something there um but as you all know you can omit things if the context is clear like so um uh right so like suppose I said these hot dogs did you eat did you eat these hot dogs and you say I ate one and you don't have to say I ate one hot dog because he just asked you about the hot dog so you can leave out because that's obvious so it's the same thing with yeah like well you know, I wrote a few pages of whatever it is that is obvious that I'm writing. Could be I wrote a few pages in my journal. I wrote a few pages uh, of homework. I wrote a few pages of my book. I wrote a few pages of my uh, thesis, whatever it is. And so that is contextual. And as usual, you can leave it out if you want. Next, Jason Pan on 见面 in context is 见面 like 说话 whereby you can place an infix to split it up. Is it because they are both verb-noun verbs? Similar to how we've seen 说的话, we see 一次. So 见一次面, 见一次面 is the, what he referred to here. So 见面 means to see face-to-face. And uh, it's really straightforward. See face, see face-to-face. So 见一次面 means to see someone face-to-face one time. 一次, right? So... Uh, he's asking, is it because it's one of those verb noun verbs? Yes. So these are called the verb what structure, uh, the shu bin shi, uh, which is a grammatical p- phrase for how these words are in Chinese. So compound words where the first character is a verb and the second character is a noun and it remains a verb. So like jian is a verb to see, mian is a noun, face. So and of course, 见面 still means to see face to face. So it remains a verb. It's possible for a verb what structure to turn into a noun or turn into an adjective. So assuming that it re- remains a verb, then you can separate it. And that's what's called a li he ci. So li means to leave and he means combine. So to leave, you're com- being combined. You know, so to leave, combined. So to separate. Separable verbs or separ- separable words. And they're usually verbs. So in this case, and the, why do you separate them? Because you're describing something about the noun or you're describing the time at which it, it happened in this case. So like, for example, uh, is just but I'm describing the fan by saying the, the meal my mom made, right? So I can, it's still just but in between we're describing what type of fan it was, right? And 见面, this is a situation where you're explaining how many times it happened, right? So, is one t- seeing face-to-face one time. And so, when you have this structure, yes, you can separate them. They're li, he, and you can do it that way. Nice. 
Michaela Ellison on Huilai in context. Please explain the grammar for this sentence. Na ni xia zhou huidalai huibulai. Is it similar to the verb bu verb structure, for example, chi bu chi, as in eat not eat, except the meaning is possible not possible, huidalai huibulai. I understand an or is not needed, but would it be wrong to say huidalai hashir huibulai? Right, so uh, the answer to the final question there is yes, that's perfectly fine to say because you are asking a yes or no question in the context of giving two choices. Not a yes or no question. You're giving an or question that gives two choices, right? So means you're able to come back. It's possible for you to come back because just means return back. Uh, and would mean it's impossible for you to return back. So by just saying them right next to each other, you're putting forward the two choices in such a way that it's obvious it's a question because you're putting them right next to each other. Like, you know, clearly you're putting forward two options. It's possible for you to return. And it, you also notice that the sentence starts with na, which means that in that case, na, in that case, next week, so clearly this is a conversation and maybe the first person said, oh, next week I, my work gave me a big project. You know they were planning to come back next week. So you say, It's very obvious from that context that you're asking a question. But it doesn't mean it's wrong to say, Either one is fine. But as usual, if you can cut down the words, then you're speaking more efficiently. So uh, both are fine. Next, we're going to move on to our movie scene shares, which are where people put together their scenes related to the Hanzi movie method for getting their actors, sets, props, and, uh, you know, meanings of the characters all put together so that they can express the meaning of the character. And um, for some of these, they're full scenes. Some of them are just kind of like hints or clues as to how you might be able to, uh, you know, learn them more quickly. So let's look at the first one from the intermediate course, Rick Santos on Make a Movie for Zun. ZU actor outside the entrance of the EN set. And just as a reminder, if you have the UN ending, for example, ZUN, Zun, uh, it actually is UN. So there is an E there, but Pinyin drops that E. Uh, it's just an oddity of pinyin. So that's why it's ZU in the EN set, but the E drops. But the E is still actually pronounced. Zuen, 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 right? So just point that out there. Okay. ZU actor outside the entrance of the EN set. Horns started coming out after consuming one inch of a bottle of Baijo. Right, nice. So there's the bottle of Baijo. There's the horns on top the bottle of Baijo in the middle, and then the uh, inch component at the bottom. And he is now bowed down, revering the bottle, <laughs> elevated one inch on the table. Nice. I like that because this character means to revere. And uh, of course, many people uh, who get a little bit too into alcohol, let's say, they start to revere the bottle. So I like that. And of course, we have the two visual instances of inch we have the inch that's taken off of the bottle 
and then the inch off the table. So I like that. That's great stuff there. And then the revering, you know, you can imagine a lot of special effects, certainly the, the bowing and scraping and like, you know, the holding up the hands and stuff. Easy to get that across visually. Nice. Rick Santos on make a movie for cool which is, this character by itself can mean uh, cool, but in kind of that same way that we might say, oh, sick, right? You know, and that's, it's not literally, because it means brutal. So it's like cool, like, oh, that's brutal, but like in a cool way, right? But it can also literally mean brutal. So uh, we gave it the keyword of brutal. In the backyard of his null set, the KU actor emptied into the cow's mouth a large bottle of baijiu. So we have... Cow, uh, cow mouth on the right side, and then we have the baijiu on the left side, the bottle of baijiu. The meek cow then gave him a brutal kick, and he landed on the ground. The drunken cow fell brutally on him with its full weight. Sometimes liquor can release the brute in the meek, right? So there's uh, several connections to brutal, and the, you know, someone who is a brute is a brutal person, and so certainly alcohol and baijiu can make that happen, and so I, I think that um, this is a great, great scene, great connections there. Will R on make a movie for gan. Keyword is gan, to emote, to show emotion in a way that makes it very clear what you're feeling. The actor is G, uh, the G actor, the set is the AN set, and the room within the set is the living room, and the props are a salt shaker and a heart. So here's the movie. The G actor is in, is in the AN living room, the G actor loves salt and is naturally a salty person. Nice. <laughs> yeah, of course, using salt and just being like, hey, you getting salty over there? <laughs> uh, the G actor picks up his salt shaker, begins to emote out his love for salt as he eats it from the salt shaker. Nice. Uh, the G actor emotes his love for the salt shaker so clearly that his heart begins to beat and shine so much out of his chest. Who would have thought a salt shaker could emote so much love from someone? Nice. I like that. And that's uh, it's silly. And, uh, you know, I've just always loved that idea of someone being a bit salty. <laughs> nice. Next, we have Will R on Make a Movie for Tian, which means money. It's the QI female actor in the AN set in the kitchen, with the props being a gold bar and a mason chain. QI actor is in the AN's kit, AN set kitchen, and the QI actor needs some money quick, only has a single gold bar, so she needs to break it down somehow. She grabs her mace and chain and uses it to smash the gold bar into loads of smaller gold coins. Some real money now. QI picks her money up and goes shopping. Yeah, I like that because we don't think of gold bars as being like liquid currency, but if she smashed it with the mace and chain and it happens to just go maybe it even makes that sound uh like that like sonic sound of like or like that when you get that in mario kart uh or mario and mario kart and like the coins fall on the table and so that is of course we think of coins as being liquid currency so perfect i love it she turns the gold bar into tian rick santos on make a movie for swan which means sour SU actor in the AN set outside the entrance puts wine let to stand idle, the top right, or the bottom right component, or brew for a long time. So I guess he's saying that ba, ba is a long time uh, in vats or jars to make sour vinegar. Seems like a lot of time wasted 
and it turned and it just turned sour. Right. Okay, cool. These are some good suggestions. In this case, it's more like they're more like a kind of I would take Rick's scene here and, and build off it. Like, you know, there's a few little triggers here. And Swan is one of the uh, more complicated characters in the course in the sense that some characters have so many different components that we can't keep it to just three components. So in this case, there are, uh, you know, more components than we would normally have. So he's doing a good job coming up with some triggers there. I like it. Rick Santos on Make a Movie for Boa. Mr. Bean as he extends his arm to open the entrance of the O set, observes his wrinkled skin, P, the right side component, resemble the ripples and small waves of the water's left side component surface on the sea. All right, so I think that this should be fine. Uh, yeah, he's opening the set. He looks at his arm, sees the skin and the waves of the sea on his skin. I think that should be fine. Yeah. I think that the water component could maybe be a little bit clearer, like if it's a bottle of water or a hose or something. But overall, this is an interesting way to get across the idea of waves. Nice. Rick Santos on Make a Movie for Yong, which means to swim. And I like this. He says, there's a kind of never-ending cycle, Yong, so Yong, the right side component means eternal, of actions when you swim in the water, which is the left side component, water. Sink or swim, right? So... Obviously, if you're in the water, you better eternally keep yourself up. Otherwise, you're going to sink, right? So it's kind of one of those things you can't stop so long as you're in the water if you want to survive. So, uh, yeah, that's I like that sort of initial connection there. Rick Santos on Make a Movie for My, which means uh, this is sort of like arteries or it can also mean, you know, blood vessels. And, but it can also, you'll say Shan Mai to mean a mountain range, but you can sort of see the connection there. It's like a system of mountains that sort of spread out into the distance, kind of like blood vessels or a system that spread out throughout your body. So you can see how Mai could have those both like vessels or range. And again, that's how Chinese sort of like surrounds an idea. They go, here's an idea, uh, intricate networks of things that spread out, right? So blood, so that's how blood vessels and a mountain range could have a relationship. Okay. So he says, M actor is a professional boxer and trains in the backyard of his AI set. My, after jogging a mile, my, so he's getting another connection to my, he took his pulse and felt the never ending cycle, the yong, the, the eternal component of blood flow in his blood vessels. Nice. Yeah. Once again, I say that this is a good trigger and I would consider adding more detail to this um but i like where rick's going you know so if you're considering your own scene here uh maybe just make sure you add in a couple of things that are super visual to make sure that the blood vessels are clear george laurer on make a movie for Tsin. it rains heavily as my qi actor arrives in front of my en location she carries a big urn with the ashes of all her relatives so the urn is the top component there it actually looks like an urn and the character means relatives. Due to the rain, the urn is very slippery and glides out of her hands. The urn crashes on the ground and cracks open. All the ash gets exposed to the rain. The QI actor is desperate and tries to protect her relative's ash from the rain. She takes a big leaf from a nearby tree and shields the ash. Otherwise, her relative's ash would get drowned 
in the ca canalization. <laughs> nice. I like it. So I suppose that perhaps the big leaf is the bottom component here. The bottom component um, is kind of a mix of, yeah, I think that leaf was the suggestion we gave for that because you can see it kind of looking like that. Nice. Awesome scene, George. Rick Santos on Make a Movie for Yo. The YI actor as a child brings her sleeping bag to travel around. So the, I guess, so I think she was saying he's going with the component that is the mix of fung and loser that we made one component as a sleeping bag because you bring a sleeping bag to travel around. Sometimes she inflates the sleeping bag and swims wading across the river. Okay, cool. Again, triggers here from Rick more than like uh, a scene that is, um, you know, at fully articulated. But I would say that, again, like you, sometimes it's all you need, just a couple of triggers. And then at this point, especially in the intermediate course, you're going to be wicked at this. Rick Santos on make a movie for sure. Sure means to like carry out. So like uh, is uh, an example of a word. Sure is like the, um, the, the different things that you must do to carry out a plan, the different um, sort of uh, phases of a plan, the, the methods that you use to finish a plan. So you're, right? So there's going to be a lot of uh, to build a building, right? You have to do this and that. And, you know, so that's the kind of idea there. So when traveling, which is the, the, he must have some association with traveling. Maybe it's a sleeping bag, which is that fang loser component, uh, with another, which is yeah, the uh, bottom right component. You will need to plan to carry each other along, and also yeah, <laughs> carry out a plan together. So yeah, he's going with the meaning of yeah here by saying another and also, uh, which is fine. Uh, of course, you can also have a visual thing to represent yeah in some way. So we often think of that as a scorpion. So perhaps a uh, because it kind of looks like a little scorpion with its long tail. Uh, so perhaps you say okay, um, the scorpion and the actor are traveling together and like, the scorpion also has a pack on and they're just like getting all these travel special moments together. And uh, yeah, that could be kind of a funny scene because, uh, you know, there's that traveling part. And then, of course, they're carrying out their plan. You can see them planning in a montage and, and all of that. Nice. Well, that's all of our scenes and questions for this week. Thank you so much. If you have any questions for us, you can message us at podcast at mandarinliber.com. And of course, go to mandarinliber.com to learn more about how you can acquire Mandarin faster than was ever possible before. And we'll see you next week.